Hey, what's going on, everybody? You're listening to The Sane Show, the show about nothing and everything. I'm your host, Cliff. And today I have another special guest joining us. I have director of production purchasing for the Madison Square Garden Company, Bill Jagel. How are you doing today, Bill? I'm doing okay, Cliff. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Super excited to have you on the show. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come on the same show today. Oh, you're welcome very much. So really quick, before I introduce the topics, I want to take and quickly shout out all the listeners in all 60 plus countries. I appreciate you guys. I love you guys. Thank you for continuing to like, share, and subscribe to The Sane Show and continuing to help spread the word. Really appreciate it. It means a lot. And if you're listening and you don't already follow us, be sure to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Sane underscore show. Again, that's Sane underscore show, S-A-N-E underscore show. And then you can find us on Facebook, Sane Show. Again, on Facebook, that's Sane Show. So today we're going to have a conversation about uh, the critical role of purchasing. And then following that, we're going to have a conversation about the Madison Square Garden Company. I'm super excited about that one. It's going to be very insightful. And then following all of that, we're going to have an interview with you, Bill, so that the listeners can learn more about you, your time with the Master Square Garden Company, and all the exciting things that go along with that. So uh, let's go ahead and hop right into it with our first topic, the critical role of purchasing. Well, mostly my purchasing was involved with Broadway productions, in particular the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. It, critical for a Broadway show, in particular for like costume sets, props, scrim, and when an artistic director comes up with an idea or even costumes is bidding it out and trying to get the best price, but also trying to get quality. So something like Rockette costumes, when you realize that they do anywhere from 200 to 230 shows in seven weeks, the costumes have to be extremely durable. So they have to be able to be worn that night, come out, get dry cleaned overnight, and then be ready for up to six shows the next day. You would, we get a design from, from the uh, artistic director. We would bid it out to like six different Broadway costume shops. And then they would come back with uh, pricing based on the list of materials that they really had to use. And then try to get the best price for it. And then also try to, uh, func- functionality has to be built into it that you're actually able to do quick changes and it has to be able to move with the dancers, et cetera. There would be right. other things that would be bizarre I think the strangest one would have to be is that there was a scene the first year I was actually with the show where half the Rockettes would have xylophones on their back and the second row of Rockettes would play a Christmas tune on the backs of the first set of Rockettes. When somebody tells you that we need microphones that can, uh, we need uh, xylophones that can fit on a dancer's back, that was really odd. (laughs) And we actually ended up getting them from a toy store and then giving them to a costume shop and they actually had to stitch them into the costume. I'm glad you shared that because you know, one of the things I wanted to, to mention too is that I think when, when we think about purchase, when most people think about purchasing, they don't, they think about in traditional business of your regular office supplies, right? And I think t- purchasing takes on a different meaning and, I, and not even I think I know it takes on a different meaning uh, within the entertainment industry, 
and you know, I, I said this before in a previous uh, episode, because over the last few shows, I've been able to talk to people and in fact, people who have done shows in Madison Square Garden venues about like the things that they do, you know, again, production managers, tour managers. Uh, we had uh, a guy that does lighting work and production lighting, better yet. And now to talk to somebody like you who is on that on the other side, right, helping mm-hmm. those very individuals out or helping, you know, secure things for the venue so that these people can come in and do the, the work that they do. Uh, so you know, I find it very interesting getting insight to all these different levels and all these different parts of what it takes to put a production together. And I think obviously the deeper you, you go, the more people don't know about it. I, I, I think that's what makes this so interesting because again, you guys hold the purse pretty much <laughs> or yeah. for some of these things like, okay, they need this. Okay. We got to go out and find it. If, if you could, as far as touch on just, just the process of it, you know, having to, having to find a vendor, having, you know, having to secure it and, you know, having these deadlines and all those kinds of things. Well, yeah, as far as costumes, it was easier at one point in time. I don't know where it is with COVID because basically costume shops basically just build costumes for Christmas, for Broadway shows. So as long as Broadway is thriving, then the costume shops can thrive. So it's really, it would be a select group, but they, I would have like eight to 10 solid go-to people where I could bid out different items to. And you would actually know that certain people had something more in their wheelhouse than another. another. Like there may be shops that did better, let's say with uh, silk, and there'll be other shops that would do better uh, with stitching and doing like sequins. So you knew what was in different people's wheelhouse, but per corporate policy, we would have to bid out to at least three different suppliers and try to get it built. And then the problem is, is then trying to come in on budget. So Broadway costumes are really expensive because of the durability factor and the amount of hand stitching that goes into them. They can run anywhere between $4,000 and $10,000 a piece. For a Rockette show, we have two casts of 36 plus four understudies. So 80 costumes have to be made. And then the costumes are fit to each one of the dancers. So if you're doing 80 costumes and they're $5,000 a piece, you're talking about a $400,000 build just for costumes for one number. So if they, you're trying to build a costume and they have specifics where they're going into a lot of detail as far as feathers and sequins and whatever else the case may be, if the price is too high and they're trying to spread whatever build they have for new scenes across the entire show, it may come back that let's if the costume was going to come in at a million dollars and they only have half a million dollars to spend on it, is now you have to go back to the artistic director and say, you have to make your costume simpler so we can fit it into the build, or you have to take money away from another part of the show and build the exact costume that you want. And so they would have that conversation without me and then come back to me and say, I, either we're going to build it or we have new specs and we can build a simpler costume and that we think this will work also. So it's kind of being the liaison between the supplier, the people who are doing the budget, and then also the artistic director. Was there ever any, uh, I guess, what, what was it like being in your position and then dealing with the people that do the budget? Well, really, it's just the fact, I think it was just professional in the fact that they knew they only had so much money to spend, and they, they know that I bid it out and got the best price, 
and what are they going to do for it? Another example of that would be the first time they decided is uh, they really wanted to be able to hear the Rockettes tapping because they are the best tap dance troupe on the planet is they actually built wireless mic. We got wireless microphone technology. We actually were on the cutting edge of it 15 years ago where we put uh, wireless microphones into the heels of every third Rockette who was dancing on stage. So you were able to hear the live tapping on stage, but now you have microphones that are actually being <laughs> bounced up and down underneath a tap dancer's feet 230 times during the course of, uh, of the run of the Christmas show, and they had to be durable enough to last. Or we had to be able to quickly change out the parts if they weren't working so they could work into the next show. And bidding out that took like a year, just going back and forth, actually trying to design something that would actually work. That sounds like a lot, especially when you're talking about technology. And, uh, or, well, yeah, the technology as far as the microphones and having to change them out is like I, I would never imagine that you that one would even, could even do that or would do that as far as building a microphone into a hill for. Uh, right, and, <laughs> and and then when you consider like we with the Radio City Christmas show is uh, starts the first week of November, goes through at least New Year's Eve, and sometimes to Little Christmas. So it would go through today, depending on how well ticket sales were going, and to keep upping the show every year so you get repeat business. The marketing platform showed that most people come back like every other year and hope to see changes in the show so the show is fresh, which is why we were constantly updating different scenes. There are only two things that you can't change in the Christmas show, and that is the uh, March of the Wooden Soldiers and the Living Nativity where you have the live camels and the sheep on stage. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, those two are off limits. Everything else can be changed. All right, we're back. This segment is going to be really exciting as well. We're going to have a conversation about the Madison Square Garden Company. And I actually, ahead of this, changed it from something else because I was thinking about it and me being a fan of New York that I am and also being having a, such a strong interest in the entertainment industry, uh, thinking about the Madison Square Garden Company and the garden itself. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about this because, you know, a lot of times when people hear the name Madison Square Garden, they think the garden, the actual garden itself, in which you have a fun fact about that, that most of us probably don't even know. So I'm definitely going to let you share. I don't want to uh, spoil that. And I'm going to let you share that for the listeners. It's much more than that, but wanted to take a brief walk through uh, Matt, the Madison Square Garden Company, uh, starting with the garden. So if you, if you could, Bill, go ahead and you know, give the listeners some insight about uh, the Madison Square Garden Company. Well, I would say it was, it was a great place to work. I don't know if you let your listeners know, but I was re recently laid off for COVID because Madison Square Garden, of course, is closed until the COVID crisis is over. But anyone who works there, if you grew up in the New York area, if you were a Ranger fan or a Knicks fan or a boxing fan, because it is the mecca of boxing, or also the New York Liberty until they recently sold it, is that everyone actually had some personal encounter of the first time that they actually went to the garden with their mom or their dad or their older brother or sister. And the first time they were actually in the arena, I heard 20,000 people chanting at the top of their lungs. 
Madison Square Garden is over 125 years old. This is the fourth building. It actually started in Madison Square down on 23rd Street, and then it moved, and then it moved up to 50th Street, where Worldwide Plaza is right now. Before, in the 1960s, it came to where the old Penn Station used to be. It spent the most time in its current location, and then I think about 10 years ago, we, we refurbished the whole building inside and out and kind of brought it up to the 21st century. But working in the building and then actually working for a Ranger game or working for a Nick game, or if your favorite band comes in, whether it be uh, U2 or P. Diddy, whatever the case may be, and then you're actually working on doing print advertising or, or uh, television advertising for the show itself, or trying to make the artist experience better because MSG prides itself on having like a great green room so that people have a great experience when they actually show up into the building. It's wild. And that actually transfers to the other buildings because we own the Beacon Theater Uptown where we do smaller shows, as well as doing shows at Radio City Music Hall. And then it also expanded to the West Coast, though we even sold the building. We, we owned the Forum for about 10 years, as well as the Chicago Theater in Chicago, which is also another iconic building. It sounds like, that, you know, that's oftentimes something that I wonder. What makes certain venues more unique than others? Because there are venues all around the world, and there are some that are bigger than Madison Square Garden. Some, I would even say, are even nicer. But from what I from what I gather from what you just said, it's a thing about the experience, right? Because especially when I think about the garden, the garden itself, you know, I think about like you know some of the biggest concerts, like you mentioned, U2, even you know Beyonce, you know, even live broadcast uh, shows, though. Know, one of my favorite examples, WWE WrestleMania. That was mm-hmm. an, that was their main uh, location for decades, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of history in the Garden. You answered, I guess, one of my other questions too, because it, that has extended to the other venues, like you said, the Beacon, Radio City, you know, Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting to see how it it all started within an arena. Or really before the arena, the the because what did was the arena built after that thousand seat theater, or if you could. Uh, uh, so you... Madison Square Garden was built around um, in the mid '60s. I'm not sure of the exact year, and the, the only drawback of that is they actually had to tear down the iconic Penn Station to build it, which was actually started the New York City landmark movement, because after the building was torn down, people were freaking out that we had torn down this this great gateway to the entire world where New Yorkers would go into Penn Station and catch trains for all the, the world. That's where Amtrak is located, but right beneath Madison Square Garden. But for, for working there and just seeing it work, I think the coolest thing to do is actually on sometimes on weekends when we, they would do like the St. John's is uses that for their home court for their larger Big East games is to have a St. John's game basketball game in the afternoon and then have a Rangers hockey game at night is that you have 20,000 people show up for a basketball game, or it could even be the Knicks and the Rangers in the same day on occasion, is that that it's set up for basketball and then the, the, the crews come in and they take up the whole basketball court and then get the ice prepared for a hockey game that night. Well, you already had a basketball game in the afternoon and the entire building has to be cleaned of 20,000 people drinking beer, eating hot dogs and popcorn 
And then it has to be spick and span by six o'clock at night when the second wave of 20,000 people come into the building. So it is on, on many levels, it's just a massive effort by the employees who work there. And it's a pretty cool place to work. Wow, wow, wow. That is, man, I tell you, that's something. That and really at is. the same time, uh, I, I think I, there could be, there's a theater in Madison Square Garden also that holds 6,000 people. So there could be a 20,000 people at a basketball game, 6,000 people at a family show for like Sesame Street downstairs. And then another 20,000 people that night for a hockey game. So mm -hmm. you're gonna, you can actually actually have three events going on in the one building in, in one day, which is pretty wild. Yeah, that is, that is. That, uh, <laughs> that oh gosh, that reminds me of a local venue here where you know, it's used as an entertainment venue and then like the local hockey team uh, also used it as a as a venue. So, yeah, but again, it's just really and that, you know, that makes me think about like the Staples Center out in L.A. You know, that, that's shared with by the Los Angeles Lakers and the Los Angeles Clippers. But again, it's not to the same. It's not like with Madison Square Garden, multiple events because they have to figure out home or away and all that kind of stuff. So because right. they both play professional basketball. So. That is something and then, that, and know. then when you think with the new security measures since 9/11, I mean, uh, right, purchasing, getting involved in looking for new technology as far as scanning is how do you get 20,000 people into the building through security mm -hmm. and have them exit safely before you have another 20,000 people show up? So that that's just been pretty daunting, also, and they've made some great improvements on that, also. Right, exactly. I, I guess. What would you say is your most memorable experience at the Garden? Well, I'm a fan of the 80s. I said the favorite show I've probably seen there would be The the Who, would be 70s, and the 80 when I saw New Order. I never saw New Order when I was a kid, and I, I saw them play like mm -hmm. three years ago, and that was great. But, yeah, the concerts are between The Who, Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith, New Order, Adele, Beyonce. It, it's... You can see, and the fact that employees do have access to tickets, even even though you have to pay for them, it's pretty yeah. cool that you that you can you can get to see any show at face value without paying a scalper price. That's very true. Yeah, I was thinking recently, one band I would love to see at the Garden would be U2. So I I feel like that would be an amazing experience. So yeah, I actually you know, saw them when they played the the nine eleven concert when they had mm -hmm. the, all the firemen's names going back and forth across the ceiling mm -hmm. of the arena who uh, the 343 who who died when the towers fell and that that was possibly the most emotional moment that I ever had in the garden that was wild wow that sounds wow yeah that sounds <laughs> yeah that's all i can say to that <laughs>
as far as the Christmas show, that was immensely helpful because of the less props that you had to buy. When I first started 20 years ago, you would have to buy new props for every single show. And so we got basically in the back of the stage is a like Times Square sized television that takes up the entire back wall of the stage. And Radio City is a theater that's a block wide. So it's like 100 feet long and something like 60 feet wide. I don't know the exact specs at this point in time. But when you can develop LED content that makes it look like all the props are already on stage, and then you can only you can place one or two pieces in front of it to give it more of a 3D effect, instead of by having huge curtains that have to go up and down that hide in the rafters. One in the long run, it was a massive time saver as far as the stage hands, but it was also a, a massive money saver because you could actually just build the content and just pop it up on a screen as opposed to actually having the physical props that have to be loaded into the building, hung in the rafters, and then at the end of the show run would have to go out to storage and you'd have to pay storage for it for a year because there is no storage for LED content. It sits on floppy drive. Okay. That's really interesting. There's been a lot of conversation about the LED screens, so I'm glad you, you mentioned that. Yeah, and just quickly, the second one would be then they also started doing projection. They also do this, in particularly at the Rangers before the show, is that there's projection, there's a whole show that goes on the ice using the ice as a screen before the show starts, before the uh, game starts, as well as in between periods. And at the Radio City Christmas show, they use the entire arch and the entire ceiling, where like a choo-choo train will go by and just follow the entire arch of the stage okay. as well as like dancing rockets and whatever else so it takes the show from being just on stage to being mm-hmm. almost like a laserium kind of thing where you're just completely enveloped in the show gotcha okay thanks for that my next question to you uh, radio city music hall is a global icon and classic fixture in new york city why has it remained so iconic and relevant as time has gone on one, it is a beautiful building. It did have a hiccup in 1979, where this is before Madison Square Garden owned it. It used to be owned by Rockefeller Center because Rockefeller Center owned all the buildings that were there. And the Radio City Christmas show was actually a part of Rockefeller Center. They wanted to, attendance was down. They wanted to tear down the theater and develop into office space. And it was actually the employees of Radio City, the Rockettes and Stagehands, who actually started petitioning the city to actually save uh, the Radio City Music Hall. And they were able to get New York City to turn it, the interior into a landmark uh, status so that it could not be torn down. And from there it developed, the Christmas show really started steamrolling into the event that it is today where 1.2 million people come into the building. But the building itself is just an art deco masterpiece. Every, Every part of it is stunning. You could you could actually go on a tour of just the uh, the restrooms, which all have an outdoor seating room because people used to be able to smoke inside with Art Deco mm-hmm. chairs and tables and lamps. It's absolutely amazing. Okay, really quick, Rockefeller Center, Thirty Rock, correct? Or well, Rockefeller uh, Center, Rockefeller Center used to be the is, yeah the landlords of Rockefeller Center is the Rockefeller Center Group. 
that used to own the entire building. I, th I, th I think that's been sold. I don't know who owns it at this point in time. They, the building's been sold a couple times, the entire office okay. complex. Cool, cool. Yeah, very insightful. So how do you manage the expectations and ideas of creatives uh, with the realities of budgets? Uh, really more, it's just straight talk. It's, it's being a straight shooter. It's just telling them, look, this is what you want to build, <laughs> and this is how much it's going to cost. If you can find the money, we can buy it. But when you have a Broadway show and everything goes into storage and you take it all out of storage, the first thing you have to do is look at everything after the end of the run and see what needs to be refurbed. So all the costumes come out and they might have to replace the feathers, they might have to replace the fur, they might have to update the sequins, it might have to be refreshed. Some of it may have to, they may decide it's too worn out, we've used it five years in a row, it's been used a thousand times, we need new costumes for that, and they can be exactly the same as the old costume, or they'll decide that it's time to put in a new number. But with all that going on, they may have, let's say, a $10 million budget to do the entire refurb for the show, as well as starting up a new scene. So if you have that amount of money, it sounds like a lot of money, but when you're doing a complete Broadway show and it could cost a million dollars just for one set of costumes, you have to figure out how you're going to budget your money. It's almost the same as like when you do your own household budget. If you're only bringing home $1,000 a month, you can only spend $1,000 a month. Mm -hmm. So you got to figure out what to do. Right. That's true. That is very true. So your background is in accounting. Uh, what were some aspects of the job that surprised you? And what are some ways accounting helped you transition? Yeah, I was I was uh, I ran the accounts payable and the accounts receivable department for eight years before I moved into purchasing. And basically was finance is hard. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when you're in the finance guys have to work till 10 or 11 o'clock at night at times. And pretty much if you're in purchasing, not to say that there weren't times I didn't work late if I was working on a project, you can only buy stuff up until five o'clock because all your sales reps are going home. There's no sales rep who's sitting at a, at a desk at nine o'clock at night saying, I'm here in case you have a late order. That doesn't happen. <laughs> So when I realized no, that so I was true. in purchasing, I could go home at five o'clock instead of going home at 11 o'clock. That's when I made the switch. But having being an accounts payable and knowing all the suppliers already and already having a personal relationship with them and trying to get them payments, it helped in my role in procurement when we were doing in particularly builds that usually have contractual payments. Mm -hmm. If you're if you're building uh, something like the double decker bus for the stage, there's uh something that's uh, like the tourist bus that comes on stage and then goes off stage, which is a major build, you're going to a small shop who needs money in order to build it. So it could be that you're gonna pay 25% on the first of four months in a row so that they can buy materials, they can pay their own labor to build it, et cetera. And if you don't get your payment out of time, it screws it up. So the fact that I knew accounts payable and I could talk finance helped be able to get the payments out on a faster basis. That was probably the best thing that happened. Okay. Well, I normally don't do this, but we got a lot, we have some time left and I actually have one more question for you. Um, it's nothing crazy, but <laughs> okay. you spent 21 years working with the same company. Why is that kind of loyalty so rare? And what about the environment was so positive that you wanted to stay in it? 
Part of it is, I have to say that I just, I just love the people that I work with. There were a lot of people who would come for five years and then move on to another job. I mean, you're working for a Madison Square Garden, which is, is, which is the Mecca in, in New York, or Radio City Musical, which is known as the showplace of the nation, or the Beacon Theater, where the Allman Brothers used to come in and just hold court for a month and do like 30 shows. It was, it was a great place to work with a lot of great people who really cared about what they were doing and were trying to give the best product as well as the best customer experience to all the people who actually graced our venues. Okay. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you for, again, taking time out of your schedule to come on the same show. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed having you on as a guest and offering all of that great insight as well. <laughs> really yeah, appreciate it, Phil. Really I enjoyed myself. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. I, that's the, one of the best compliments the host could get. <laughs> but yes, thank you again. And thank you listeners for continuing to listen to The Sane Show. Again, uh, continue to like, share, and subscribe to The Sane Show. I uh, love you guys. Appreciate it. And with that being said, again, you guys are listening to The Sane Show, the show about nothing and everything. And until next time, we're out. 